When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi, this is Janice Joplin's biographer, Holly George Warren, and you're listening to Pantheon Podcasts. Hey everyone, today we've got on noted author, popular music journalist, and record producer Harvey Kubernick. Now, if you haven't heard his name, you've definitely read his work. He's been chronicling the LA music scene for the past five decades. And in today's episode, we're going to cover the monkeys. We're going to discuss his friendship with Charlie Watts of the Stones. We'll talk the Beach Boys. And he'll also tell us about one memorable night with his dear friend, Brian Wilson. But he's also going to explain, and this is very interesting, the cultural shift that was happening in L.A. in the late 50s and how major league sports actually played a large role in that. There is a lot to cover in this episode, so let's get started. Harvey, thank you for coming on My Rock Moment. Very pleased to be here. <laughs> it's, quite a, it's quite a rock moment for me, talking oh. to a graduate of Loyola Marymount University. Oh, I know, I know. It's probably a banner moment for you, but <laughs> you are quite accomplished, though. You are a journalist, you are an author, you are a music historian, but you are also a native Angelino like me, which... I love because it's always wonderful to connect with people who, you know, share a passion for the city and its history and all the incredible music that came out of here, which is an understatement when applying to you. Well, we have a certain, um, it's part of our DNA when you're born and raised here. Agreed. Um, and, and it's not often that I get to speak, of course, with you, I think you're a third generation Angelino. You can never dismiss the bioregional aspect uh, that's in our work, what you do and, and what has completely informed everything I've done. Um, you know, that's not to say we couldn't do this in New York or Chicago, but when you grow up listening to radio stations here or read newspapers here 
or watch the news here or go to concerts and clubs here, it can't help but like, you know, you know, inform and enhance your whole expedition. Yes. I mean, there's something to um, being able to talk about a place and a time, but then there, you know, to be able to walk by the whiskey, to be able to walk into the troubadour, to see these amazing venues and other moments and, you know, spots where, you know, some, you know, um, major part of music history happened. And I've used this word before, it creates a deep reverence for this city. It's not a faraway land. You are living and breathing it. Um, and that has fostered a deep love for me, especially living on the Sunset Strip for years. People like you and I carry the environment with us. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And, and this is something that was really instilled to me at such an early age. And I didn't know how important my hometown was to me until probably after I graduated college. I never took it for granted, but when you start reviewing your life or you get into writing books or humongous multi-voice narratives that I do, you realize the music you heard in the late 50s or the seminal concerts you checked out or what your parents and you watched on television, you carry those moments with you. And in the case of me, I'm lucky enough, if that's the term, that I actually get to bring the the atmosphere into the work I do. Yeah. Your work, I mean, has spanned over, you know, what, five decades at this point, I think you said. And you have chronicled the California sound so well, among other, you know, genres and things like that. But the California sound specifically so thoroughly. You did Canyon of Dreams, the magic and music of Royal Canyon. A Perfect Haze, Monterey International Pop Festival, The Doors, Summer's Gone. You also did <laughs> Turn Up the Radio, Rock, Pop, and Roll in Los Angeles, 1956 to 1972. Incredible book. Incredible book. Well, that means a lot to me because um, I embraced the multi-narrative form. I, I I can easily write these books myself and not talk to any of my friends. I know you can. And you why <laughs> why? Because I lived it. I reported it. I do the interviews. I I went through these. I was the witness. And because I'm so lucky to know so many fascinating people, and some of them are civilians, plumbers, tile makers. It's not all celebrities and people in rock bands and guys in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. We are music geeks. <laughs> we are record collectors. And I don't, I am, I am still a record geek. I'm still at swap meets. I'm still at thrift stores. I'm not as obsessed, you know, I'm, I'm working. <laughs> but mm-hmm. I just think, especially with Turn Up the Radio, that is, that is a document that a little later in life will will be thoroughly appreciated. It's got an audience. It's the book people come up to me in in the market or at a record store. You know, I'm not all over social media with Facebooks, Instagram. I'm not elusive or anything, but <laughs> but I'm with friends of mine, and some of them are in some real famous bands. 
And then some girl will start screaming, it's him. And or some guy will go, hey, me and my chick have your car, my book and one of our van come out. No, I turned down the blunt with them. (laughs) (laughs) No, Uh, but I know what these books mean to people. I think it's all working really well. I think it is all working really well. And I want to dive into that. I want to go back to the beginning, but I want to touch on this book again, turn up the radio one more time, because yes, it's a wonderful book, but it's also the reason you and I met so serendipitously. I was on Sunset Strip. I was with a girlfriend of mine who was a photographer. We were taking some fun pictures. I walked into Book Soup. We're looking around at, you know, everything they've got. We're in the rock book section. She looks at me and says, hey, turn around, grab a book. Turned around. I grab a book that looked good. Turn up the radio. And she snapped a shot of me, which circulated years later, because this was before the pandemic, which circulated somehow to your computer. And you reached out, which was wonderful. Because I looked at that book when I took the picture and I thought, what did I just pick up? This is a masterpiece. (laughs) Well, you you should know, as Andrew Lou Goldham told me, there are no accidents. There you go. And the fact that we met on Sunset Boulevard (laughs) (laughs) means a lot to me. We did. We did. In a way, we did. But I will say a lawyer that I work with made a phone call to me and said, uh, there's a woman out there. I don't know if she's a writer, a disc jockey. There's a picture of a woman holding your turn up the radio book. And I said, what? <laughs> and then he sent me the photo and I said, I just need to say hello and thank you to this person. <laughs> I want to jump back because not only are you native Angelino, you're also essentially a child of Hollywood. And you grew up with a mother that worked on a very hot TV show back in the 60s, which I'm sure fostered, you know, or at least the beginnings of that love of the music. She got a job uh, at Columbia Pictures as a secretary and a stenographer. She had the skills. Show business is not in my family, but she got a job and she was there for about 10 years. And I'd see my mother at at her at the office. Now, I didn't really realize at the time when I'm 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, there's Cary Grant, there's Ernest Borgnine, there's Gregory Peck. You know, these men are passing me. I sort of knew them a little bit from movies, but. So when she said, oh, we're working with this rock group being put together, come by the office. You'd like this guy, Mickey. Remember, he was in that show Circus Boy. Hi, Mickey. Ah. What's, you know, so you have that in front of me. And Mickey and I just bonded the first day I met him because, okay, it's 1965. I think I said, what sign are you? (laughs) Appropriate. Appropriate. Yes. Yes. And he said, Pisces said, so am I. And then Bob Raffleson said, Bob Raffleson, the co-producer said, so am I. So all three of you, including Mickey Dolans, are Pisces. Okay. All right. Okay. I'm sorry, but 
I stopped applying logic to the entertainment and show business a long time ago. I must go into the spiritual plunge. Astrology sometimes is a Geiger counter. I'm getting results. Nothing needs to be explained. So I was around the monkeys, not a ton because I had school. I had an after school job. It isn't like I went to every taping, but I, but the great thing was I saw how entertainment worked. I should have been taking more notes, but I had access to see this phenomena start in front of me. And it goes, and, and I thought, but I thought the music, I, what do you mean? And I would look at sheet music of people submitting acetates and demos for the monkeys to record. And I'd see names like Paul Williams. I didn't know who Paul Williams was, but it all, it all, it was such an education to me for many years. I tried to write about it, but our wonderful East coast media always would take the monkey stuff out of my articles. If I was doing a history of LA, it, they weren't cool for a long time during glitter disco. I've never given up my monkey's button. Well, okay. First of all, I want to just say a little bit about this because I still encounter a lot of people who don't regard them as legitimate musicians or a legitimate band because they were put together, because yes. there is an element of being manufactured. Mm -hmm. And I have to contest that. They were all musicians in their own right. We had a conversation about this. They used the Wrecking Crew on their first two albums. And I think after that, every instrument. Yes. Based on a need to really establish themselves and prove themselves as musicians, they started playing on all of their records. They were true musicians. Yes, they were put together by casting agents, but they were all talented in their own right. So I want to settle that score right now. <laughs> and can I can I add one thing? Because Mickey Dolans would love you. I Mickey Dolans said to me, and it's in um, the Monterey book I wrote with my brother. And it's also in the new uh, Jimi Hendrix book that we wrote. And by the, and Mickey said, yeah, I, I used to hear this. We were put together. Well, you know, Jimi Hendrix was put together with the two other musicians in his band. And, and, and then Mickey said, oh, by the way, I was at the Monterey Pop Festival and so was Jimmy. Um, as far as original material, over half of the songs Jimmy did, did at Monterey, he didn't write. Well, there you go. The only difference was they had a TV show. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and he makes it a point. We were a, t we were a band about a TV group, and they tried. To, they showed like a garage band trying to make it or get aligned. The the monkeys really helped expose the Goffin King songwriting team. So many songwriters, Harry Nielsen, and and listen, I I knew people like Larry the Mole Taylor who was in Can't Heat. He's the bass player, like on the first two Monkees records. Mm -hmm. He was in the Ventures. He loved playing on the Monkees, and it went beyond the eighty-two fifty an hour fee. They loved doing fun pop music because the next week they had to do hard blues stuff with harmonicas. Everybody had a good time, as they asked, as they said. Everybody got laid and paid, and we benefit from it. All of us, <laughs> a half a century later, we are now going deeper into the monkeys, their catalog. We're discovering there's more to them than I'm a believer. Things like Saturday's Child, which David Gates of Bread wrote, and he sure liked it when they covered that song. I mean, I was raised on Nick at Night. 
And yes. the monkeys were a staple on Nick at Night. My mother could easily sit me in the other room, let me watch TV. She knew if I was watching that, it was okay. Yes. And I developed a bit of a fascination with them. I love them. When you had a sad child Always feeling low down Tuesday had a dream child She's always on the go So I'm in love with Saturday's I was reading something in one of your articles and you mentioned that in 1959 specifically, that was a tipping point for Los Angeles where everything started to shift out here. Now, I don't know what transpired in 1959, but I would love to hear. Well, I'd love to tell you because (laughs) I'm probably the only guy who's presented this and I've I've said it to a couple of people and they're just flabbergasted, like never thought of that. Um, In 1958, the Brooklyn Dodgers moved to Los Angeles in 1958. There was a major league baseball team in Los Angeles, the West Coast. There was fantastic minor league baseball here. This city loved baseball so much. There was the Pacific Coast League with the Angels and the Hollywood Stars. But all of a sudden, a New York State team relocates to L.A. because they couldn't get a stadium to replace Ebbets Field. The New York Giants moved to San Francisco. Mm-hmm. You have professional baseball here. Now, in 1959, that's when the Lakers are first coming. The Los Angeles Lakers are relocating from Minneapolis They kind of arrive in the 1959 and 60 season. And all of a sudden, the New York media has to pay attention because their children have run away from home. (laughs) Their favorite teams have left them to come to phony plastic entertainment world, Hollywood and Los Angeles. And what happens in 1959? The Dodgers win the World Series. Hmm. Do you, you know how popular baseball is? And this is before cable and all that. You know when a team wins a World Series, and this is before NFL Super Bowl stuff, it brings commerce, coverage, and relocation out here. And that's a very big point nobody thinks about. Very true. Because nobody realizes that L.A. wasn't, to quote Kim Fowley and uh, turn up the radio, until then, Los Angeles was looked upon as a cow town. As a cow town, even though it had a, the Hollywood was thriving and in full force in 1959. Yes, but it was the end of the studio system with movies. It's years before Easy Rider and BBS Films. There's a little bit of change in the air. We're talking 58 and 59, but the big tipping point, groups, whether duos, people like Jan and Dean have some kind of hit records, 58, 59, 60. They go to New York and they play. And then the Beach Boys sort of form 1960 where they start recording. And all of a sudden... The West Coast has a a, a new brand, a new identity, Sunshine Music, 
rock mm-hmm. and roll, mm-hmm. beach music, harmony. Um, and there was always a thriving R&B blues scene in L.A. There were blues radio stations. B.B. King lived here. But everybody had R&B and blues music in Chicago and Philadelphia and New York. But they didn't have Jan and Dean, the Beach Boys, the Mermaids, mm-hmm. the Sun Rays. There were groups that had, well, I'm I talking to a PV girl. <laughs> there, there, were, <laughs> there were groups that, that had beach affiliation. Yep. And that was sexy, exciting, new, J.C. Penney's clothing, Pendleton's, wingtips. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. Yes, I do. And, and the music was strong. Car songs, <laughs> drive-in stuff. And it it was something that was that really put this world under the microscope, meaning Life Magazine and Look Magazine. It was still a world of AM radio, but the transistor radio started coming in late 50s, early, early 60s, 61, maybe. When that transistor showed up and you had powerhouse radio stations in town, KFWB, Carolee starts in 1960. KHJ Boss Radio starts in 1965. You have 50,000 watt AM radio stations and there's no cable. So there was only three like TV major stations. All of a sudden, what we were offering is going around the world. So that's that's the carryover of the Dodgers. And by the way, here's the other thing. Hate to turn it into sports. In 1963, the world is watching the Dodgers against the Yankees in the World Series. It's in color now. It's 63. The dreaded Dodgers are playing the Yankees. Sorry, folks. The Dodgers beat the Yankees in four straight. Championship. Oh, it was just a fluke. Hey, kids, they won again in 1965. Oh, by the way, they went back to the World Series in 66. So the beachhead was established. And then all of a sudden, the Lakers are starting to percolate before they really win a championship in 72. Mm -hmm. The Rams had always been here in 1951. They relocated from Cleveland. There was always football here, but it takes all the sports to win championships. So right now, why is there a big renaissance happening about L.A.'s the place? Well, two years ago, the Dodgers won the World Series. Two years ago, the Lakers won the NBA championship. And that last year or this year, the Rams won the Super Bowl. So it was really, I mean, a perfect storm. You've got the sports teams coming in, the popularity of them, these L.A. teams winning these championships. You've got the beach scene happening. I'm you know, putting it into very yes. base terms. Um, and then you already have, you know, the Hollywood element as well. So it's kind of like this perfect storm of factors coming together that's putting more of a microscope, I guess you could yes. say, on the city itself. Um, and there was a lot of change happening, too. Obviously, the Sunset Strip was making room in the early 60s for these incoming bands because you've got these clubs, you know, the Crescendo or Ciro's or whoever it was, which really catered to the Hollywood elite. Yes. And the performers heading east, heading to Las Vegas. Sunset Strip, we've talked about this in, in previous uh, past episodes. 
it almost becomes somewhat dilapidated. There's, it's this weird transitional period. You know, Hollywood's coming out and a new wave of, I want to say, bohemians, hippies, artists, whoever you want to call, whatever you want to call them, are coming in and the music is coming with them. Hey guys, we're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsor. We'll be right back. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com pantheon. Buyraycon.com pantheon. Okay, guys, let's get back to the interview. Everybody talking about the seventh sun in the whole round world. There is only one, and I'm a one. I'm a one. I'm a one. I'm a one. The one I call the seventh sun. It took people like Johnny Rivers, 64, early 65, to be the first kind of rock artist act at the Whiskey A Go-Go. The way Ian Whitcomb was the first British guy, first musician to bring a piano into the troubadour. So all of a sudden, instruments and bookings are very important. That set the scene for a lot of stuff. Right. And I, I want to stop you because you mentioned Johnny Rivers. You... Got to see Johnny Rivers at the Whiskey in 1964. Am I right? Late 64, early 65. When um, he had my, a, yeah. He, he was opening at there. the, he was opening at the Whiskey. He had maybe not even had a hit record yet, but they, the club opened. And it was a situation where my father, who was a stockbroker, did some work for some of the guys at the Whiskey. I mean, eventually he did a little bit of work for Lou Adler, but um, they were very strict on um, age policy there. It was 21 and over because there were very important things like dance permits. Yeah. I mean, I mean, girls pe- pre-patchouli oil, like midriffs and bell bottoms. <laughs> I know it sounds crazy, but that was threatening to dress codes at school and neighborhood watchdog people. Oh, my God, my my. My 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 daughter knows the word hippie. I mean, there was some of this alarm out there, not counting wardrobe, long hair, 
it start part of it is traced to the Beatles, February 64 being on Ed Sullivan. Ed Sullivan. Of course, mm-hmm. if you look at those haircuts now, they also they seem rather short. I know, I know. I feel the same way. I'm like, this was considered long. These are mop tops. <laughs> okay, so so um we got to go to the whiskey go-go. Um, I had to hold my mother's hand the whole night because uh, it could have been a violation uh, left att- unattended because they had a liquor license. Okay. So the whiskey a go go was presented. Johnny, I, I was going to Johnny rocked the band rocked. It was a trio I seem to remember, and he's doing songs now. I didn't quite know who Chuck Berry was. I wasn't doing the maths, but these songs like Memphis or Mountain of Love or Seventh Son. They made an impression. Long distance information, give me Memphis, Tennessee. Help me find a party that tried to get in touch with me. She could not leave a number, but I know who place to I've said this before, and it's in my books. I went to the April 67 KHJ concert. Um, It was for the National Negro College Fund. It was the Supremes with an orchestra. It was the Seeds. It was Johnny Rivers. It was Fifth Dimension. It was Brenda Holloway and the Buffalo Springfield. Mm. 93 cents. Oh, that that almost pains me. Right. So how could you not be affected by something like that. But simultaneously in 66, a big turning point for me, I I had mentioned that I saw the Beach Boys and I went, I started surfing at Toes Jetty and I just loved the Beach Boys music. Then the Beatles showed up and I kind of left the Beach Boys for a little bit. But I want to stop you on the Beach Boys there because I know they as a band mean a lot to you. And you had mentioned in passing or I read it somewhere that you nearly saved Brian Wilson's life at some point. You know, that story is actually in the new David Leaf book. It's it's something, it's not a secret. It's just something I held close to myself for 44 years because I never wanted to capitalize on it. And it, it's a little thing Brian and I have, but just basically one night in 1978, I was walking on Sunset Boulevard, of course, going over to DJ Rodney Bingenheimer's apartment because he had some English import albums of like Susie and the Banshees or people like that. Maybe it's 11 o'clock at night and I hear all these cars, you know, screeching and horns honking, like, oh my God, what's going on? Because it sounded like an accident was going to happen. And I look up And there's a guy or a man in the middle of sunset and there's no traffic light there. And it's dark at night. I didn't know it was Brian Wilson. So I actually went into the street, like doing one of those good Samaritan deals, hold it, stop it, you know, but I stopped the action and grabbed this guy who's just wearing a bathrobe and is totally stoned out. I go, Brian, Brian. And it was him. And I got him onto the sidewalk and he was babbling. He had just gotten divorced. He was really uh, unsettled. Mm-hmm. That's a good word. And by the way, I didn't have a cell phone on me. So I went over to Rodney's. You should have seen the look on his face when Rodney 
I have a guest here tonight. <laughs> and and Rodney knows Brian from 1965. He said, are you okay, Brian? Now, I was a little concerned. I wanted to call the paramedics because he was sweating and breathing. But then he got better. And then I said, we need to call the we need to call an adult. So I called David Leaf on the phone. <laughs> Partly because And David Leaf is it. an author. Yes, but he had just written a book, kind of was developing a book on the Beach Boys, but he he knew who Brian was. What should we do? Can we go over to UCLA? And, and David said, bring him over to, to my apartment. And and that was it. He, he said, I thought for 40 years, David took him to UCLA just for observation or something. I only learned six months ago, Brian was got better and David took him to a newly a new house that Brian had gotten in Pacific Palisades as part since he wasn't married anymore there was this house that had no furniture nothing and David took him there and I only found that out recently so Brian and I have this little bond that I I wouldn't want to say I saved his life but it was a very if I wasn't there as David wrote, there would have been some splattered remains on Sunset Boulevard. Oh, geez. So does he remember the night? The best thing I can say is when I interviewed him in 2007, we were eating at a deli for, for about 20 years. I'd have a meal once a year with him, just a good catch up thing before he was like remarried and we'd go to the house and I was very close with the, first wife, which I call the first administration. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so we were ordering some food and, and a dessert and it was so much sugar. It was frightening. And he said, get another piece of carrot cake. You know, remember, he said, remember Sunset Boulevard. Wow. He has that ability to throw zingers. You know, he does that kind of just when you think, oh, Wow. Um, he's on TV talking about depression and you you know about his trials and tribulations. He'll like say stuff like, hey, man, uh, have you ever heard Del Close? Like how to speak hip this 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 album from way back. I have this bond with him. It's record. It's records and food with him. But David was really doing a deep dive on Brian Wilson and asked me to be interviewed about it. And I and I think it it came across really well. Uh. I love the colorful clothes you wear And the way the sunlight plays upon her head I hear the sound of a gentle mood On the wind that lifts her perfume through the air I'm picking up good vibrations and, you know, you talk about these friendships that you've had and, you know, you mentioned Bobby Womack, um, mm-hmm. Andrew Lug Oldham, um, you know, even Ray Manzarek from The Doors. Mm-hmm. I mean, these were people that were special to you um, that may have even acted as mentors. Well, Bobby Womack said, I'm going to be coming after you if I ever find out you got anywhere near cocaine. I said, I don't want to try it. He said, okay, you're going to keep all your hair. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you then, did. 
Yes. Yes. Okay. So he gave me an anti-drug thing and stay away from, he called it the white lady, which is cocaine. Stay away from that. Don't try it. You don't need it. You got enough energy. Okay. I got it. Um, Andrew Lou Goldham. And again, this is remarkable. I was always like his produced production of the Rolling Stones records and his liner notes on the back of albums. I did a term paper in junior high or high school on one of his set of liner notes on the back of an album. Because it was one of those music appreciation classes where you talk about your favorite record, but I focused on the liner notes. Now, I never thought I would meet Andrew Luga Oldham. I swear to God, I'm with Bob Sherman, who called me today, I went to Fairfax High, and I, this is, a, this is just remarkable when I think about it. So in 2000, I go to see Brian Wilson at the Hollywood Bowl debut Pet Sounds. I'm really excited. I, box seats, the whole Wow. Bit. Okay. Okay. And David Leaf is sitting in front of me. We're with Henry Deltz. We're, we're, we knew the band. We had to buy tickets, but we had some access. This isn't a platinum thing. This isn't a meet and greet. We just we had to buy tickets, but it was groovy. I'm right there. And David Leaf... Um, saw Brian before the show and David Leaf just as the lights were dimming and get to your seats David Leaf says I said hey was there anybody backstage I just saw Lou Adler walking around I mean I was just asking like anybody backstage and to Jack Nietzsche and any of the Rangers was Don Randy there I, I sort of knew these people and David Leaf says the guy walking in front of you is Andrew Luke Oldham I said what he said Andrew Lou Goldham is sitting, that's him over there. He's sitting right in the one seat over from you. And I tap him on the shoulder and I said, Mr. Oldham, I'm Harvey Kubernick. I, I used to write for Melanie Maker in England for many years. You might know my byline. And he said, English, he said, you're not English. I said, no. And I said, I'd like to talk to you. Uh, I'm writing, I'm, you know, I'm trying to write a book. And he said, get a hold of me through somebody's name. I, I called him on the phone. I interviewed him for a magazine. And this is a guy, 22 years later, there's three emails a day. Last week, my brother and I had dinner with him. He lives in Bogota, Colombia. And he gave me some very wise information at the Hollywood Bowl that night. And he said it again last week. He was complimenting me on my nutrition and, you know, I've been taking care of myself because I'm a big swimmer now. And he said, listen, dear boy, instead of looking at the movie, be the movie. When he told me that, be the movie, I put in a more cinematic elements into my writing. I started describing locations, places to eat. I started talking about food. You start seeing food references, and geographical things even more, instead of veering away from being an LA guy, I just did more LA stuff, more, more. And it, it shows up and what it's really propelled the work forward. They all knew I was never into this thing for girls or drugs or money. They knew that because I would ask questions like, well, what kind of tape did you lose, use? Did you use a different kind of recording tape when you did the Strange Days album? Ray would say, 
you know what? I better introduce you to Bruce Botnick. He went to Fairfax and Hollywood High School. You can ask him about four track, eight track. You can ask him about the machine at Electra Studios. But you see, you ask people questions that nobody else asks. And that's one of the things I think I do. Ask people things that nobody asks about. Still get your story, still plug and promote their new product, but hit them with some zingers. And it's not to trick them. It's just something because the people I know have been interviewed 5,000 times and they've they've answered every the same questions a lot. Right. So when you when you come up and you bring something to the plate, and all of a sudden all these things just come together. And then here we are decades later. I know these people, I tout them, but I also have experienced so much education from them that I think I carry to other people. of the pandemic i didn't get to do with my brother the big promotion on the Jimi hendrix book and i know there's such rabid devoted Jimi hendrix fans out there i was looking forward because we delivered a book that is just energetic and i did feel jimmy on my shoulder a few times because i wanted a book where it wasn't about sex drugs heroin ex-girlfriends I wanted to show Jimmy's relationship to L.A. He did literally one of his first recording sessions at Gold Star Studios. I I uncovered a lot of stuff with my brother on this book. So when I went to places like the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and and talked about the Summer of Love in 67, being able to tell people about Los Angeles and San Francisco and New York and London to an audience in Cleveland, Ohio, about the Summer of Love by somebody who was a teenager then. This is not revisionist history. I really was there. So, so many of the books and movies made today, and this is just age, are made by 30, 40, 50, or 60-year-old people. It's fantastic. They weren't there when it happened. Yeah. Some of them I call Wikipedia children. I wasn't either. You know, I mean, you by default have to become a, a Wikipedia child. It, it's all you have. And so for me, having a, um, you know, a, a podcast like this, where I can connect yes. with people like you that were actually there, that were actually experiencing it, that witnessed it firsthand, that's as close as I'm ever going to get. You know, and I think, I, look, I, there's also two types of people, right? And I've realized this even traveling the world. There's some people that want to know exactly what transpired in that spot they're standing in right now and when. And then when they hear about it, the, the place comes alive for them. That spot takes on a new, a new life of its own, right? You're touching the walls. You're going, oh my God, this happened here. So there's a little bit of that. And then yes. when you couple the love of the music, I mean, walking Sunset Strip, 
And I'm sorry if this offends anybody, but walking Sunset Strip and the nostalgia I feel for a time that I was never a part of, it's almost like walking into church for me. Yeah. I can go on forever, but I won't. It's a different Sunset Strip now. Most of my places are torn down. Although, you know, there's still a little bit left that. You know, you know, I was blessed with a really good memory. It still exists. If you can just get your mind together, then come on across to me. Let me ask you, yeah. very quickly, of all the work you've done, things you've written, articles you've written, the books you've written, is there one or two that you are most proud of? Because maybe you were able to really dig in there and get some of those you know, more anecdotal stories, or it just resonated more with you. And I'm sure you've been asked that, and it's a very contrived question, but I have to ask, is there something you're particularly most proud of? Is it the Jimi Hendrix book? Is it Turn Up the Radio? Well, the Turn Up the Radio ranks up there because it's my life from age five to 21. Whether we like it or not, our life changes at 21 because you have access to alcohol and you are an adult. I mean, we're sure we could say 18. I specifically wanted to focus on what hit me between age five and 21. I mean, I actually had to adhere to the restrictions and the limitations of doing something where there was a, it's like a basketball game with the clock ticking. I had to, I had to focus on a lot of regional music in this time period. Mm-hmm. That, and now the Summer of Love book is sort of my, um, it's the one when somebody brings it up to me, I will spend the most time with them on. Because mm-hmm. I feel it was hidden. It is such a mind blow look at the year of 1967. And it had so many enthralling photos. And I really showed a different side of just peace and love. I showed technology. I showed the emergence of the eight track tape cartridge coming in. I showed things like the TV show Playboy After Dark. I made it multiracial. People are delighted when they see Sam Cooke or Bobby Womack or the Chambers Brothers or Arthur Lee quoted because they're usually left out of these formats. The hardest one was writing an obit tribute to Charlie Watts when he left the planet because he actually was a friend of mine, but he, I did drummer stuff for him. What's drummer stuff? Hello, the phone would ring. Harvey, it's Charlie Watts. And we always had a little kibitz. His, my middle name is Robert. He was Charles Robert Watts, you know. Drummer Robert calling you. He said, listen, is, is Chico Hamilton or Louis Belson around? Drummers, jazz guys. I go, yeah, I'm going to actually a jazz function that uh, Chico will, will be at Saturday night. Could you get his autograph for me? Sure. <laughs> then the Stones will come on tour a year later. 
and I'd handed the autograph. And I didn't know that he was kind of building a drum museum and collecting autographs of drummers. But the highlight of this trip that I'm in is about 10 years ago, I go to the post office and I'm looking at this guy and I know he's not an actor, but he looks really familiar. And I sort of said, maybe that's Stan Levy. I recognized him from Downbeat Magazine, a drummer, a jazz drummer who later became a photographer. Nobody knew where he was. And I said, excuse me, are you Stan Levy? And he said, yes. Do I know you? And I go, no, but I've, I've been instructed to get your autograph for Charlie Watts, the drummer of the Rolling Stones. Well, how does he know me? And I said, and how do you know him? <laughs> He's going, who is this guy? And he said, well, he doesn't know you, but you're one of his heroes. He saw you play in 1960 at Wembley Stadium when you were with Stan Kent. And he said, here's my phone number and address. Yeah, come by, come by when the Stones are in town. Sure. I call up Charlie and I call up Keltner. I said, Keltner, because Charlie doesn't have a cell phone. I said, Jim, when you hear from Charlie, you tell him, I have found, this is Bigfoot kind of stuff, finding Stan Levy, okay? It, it doesn't mean much to anybody, but like four people, sort of. And my brother was pretty impressed. And I said, listen, when you come to town, and Charlie had his office said, set up a lunch for all of us on our day off between shows at the Staples Center. Oh, let's go to Stan's house. So I set I set this all up, and we had an afternoon just sitting around with Stan Levy and Charlie invited the family to the, the show. He was just he said I can't thank you enough, and I said I did my drummer thing. Then he'd go, by the way, have you heard of this book on Shelley Mann that's been self published, the drummer? I go yeah, I've ordered one for you, and he said. Can I give you four tickets to the concert instead of two? All right. So, well, given that this is my rock moment and you have yeah. had so many moments, what mm -hmm. was that moment or the, maybe there were a couple that moved you to become a writer? You know, you say that this was not, this was not in your peripheral at all. Are you kidding? The guy that called me today, Bob Sherman, who I went to high school with said, you know, I hate to say this to you every year, but in Miss Cotter's English class, if you would have told me you'd write books, we never would have believed it. Um, the moments. Um, the Beach Boys at a record store because they were really in front of me. Yeah, wow. Really in front of me. And what was the impact? I asked my mother and we went to J.C. Penalties and I got a Pendleton. J.C. Penalties. <laughs> got a Pendleton. But I was the only person in elementary school that didn't have blonde hair. I did belong to the YMCA, but I was always kind of 
I didn't have blonde <laughs> hair. So I will confess right now, I'm coming out. I did go to the beach and put lemon on my hair. Well, was the time? Who didn't? Okay. Then <laughs> and that all was all Ryan a, Wilson and the Beach Boys. And dudes. Big impact, because uh, Dennis Wilson had blonde hair. He sure um, did. Big event in 64. I see the Beatles on the Jack Parr television show in late, late 63. The Beatles, Jack Parr said, I went to England and my daughter, Randy, told us about it. They showed a clip of the Beatles singing some other guy from the Cavern Club. Mm-hmm. I just caught the flash that this wasn't the Beach Boys, this wasn't Janet Dean, this wasn't Ike and Tina Turner, this wasn't anything like the music I heard, and I'm 12 years old. And I go, wow. So I go to school the next day, and of course nobody believed me about this Beatles group because nobody saw it. Now, when they were on Ed Sullivan, everybody saw the Beatles, and all of a sudden, for one day I was the big man on campus. That's the group you were telling us about. But I saw the Beatles, Washington, D.C., live broadcast uh, concert at the Wilshire Theater, which is now the Saban Theater. Mm-hmm. Seeing the Beatles, I thought they were in the movie theater with us. It's where I saw The Great Escape and saw all those big movies. I, I thought what I was watching on screen, I thought they were there in front of me. It was that vivid. And Leslie Gore and the Beach Boys were on the bill. Of course, I find out later the Beach Boys segment was taped in Burbank at NBC Studios and just inserted. I found out decades later. But I'm seeing the Beach Boys and the Beatles at a movie theater on yeah. a screen. Incredible. Incredible. I, I mean, that, that made a big point. But then I have to say, 1966 going to American Bandstand, the guests were Bob Lynn, who had a beautiful song, Elusive Butterfly, beautiful Mm -hmm. tune. And literally kind of like, it's actually it's 65. No, it's it's early 66. The Mamas and Papas are the guest. Now they're lip syncing. I thought they were singing live. You don't know, but there were no wires or anything on the floor. I should have figured that out. I'm telling you, hearing Monday, Monday in California dreaming, I just thought it was music from another world. Yeah. And and see that. And it had such power. Two different girls wanted to like dance with me. Of course, when the song was over, they split. (laughs) (laughs) I get that. I've been one of those girls. I know. Okay. They're feeling the music, and when the moment's gone, the moment's gone. Okay. (laughs) Hey, can I? Can I, what's your family's phone number? No, no, uh, no. That, did, that didn't happen. <laughs> That's okay. I, I went to McDonald's or something after. <laughs> but, but these things stick with you. So it was a succession of moments. All of them were part of the brew. All of them were part of the brew. Okay, well, the last question I want to ask you, because you talked about people saying, we thought you were going to become a DJ. And maybe you can't do this because it's like picking children. But your top five albums, the Harvey Kubernick list of albums that you couldn't live without. We'll call them Desert Island Discs. Okay. Call, call them Desert Island Discs. Okay. Okay. Exile on Main Street, Rolling Stones. Mm. Beatles White Album. There you go. 
Bob Dylan, Blonde on Blonde, Buffalo Springfield again, Love Forever Changes. So good. Some I mean, of my tops are in there too. I mean, yes. I'm just saying, do I need 10 or 50? Yes, but those are, those, I have them in every configuration, including eight-track tape. Oh. Arvi, thank you so much for taking the time. This was quite a discussion. I learned so much. So I hope my listeners, you know, do as well. Um, and I'm going to be putting a link to your books in the show notes so people can check them out themselves, which I highly recommend they do. I, I mean, your breadth of work is incredible. And listen, you know, uh, we're all in this music together. I'll leave you with this quote from the band leader, Horace Tapscott. Okay. Horace said, we are in collabor we are in collaboration, not in competition. Yes. Come on now. Come I wish everybody now. would subscribe to that. I'm trying to tell you. So it's you and me and a handful of other people, but maybe that thing can spread like an amoeba or something. But people, we can, it's not one of these, let's get along. I'm talking about the artists, the DJs, the musicians, the writers. Quit, we're all in this together. We are not, we're, maybe we're fighting for the same slot or maybe an article in a paper or the same book deal. Relax, just collaborate more with people. Right. All right, well, I thank you for your time and energy today. Thank you. Thank you. All right, a big thank you to Harvey Kubernick for coming on My Rock Moment. There is never a dull moment with him. He is like a walking encyclopedia of rock. Now, I've provided a link to some of his books, including Turn Up the Radio, Jimi Hendrix Voodoo Child, and A Perfect Haze Monterey International Pop Festival in the show notes, so be sure to check them out and everything else he's done. As always, guys, don't forget to subscribe and please follow me on Instagram at LA Woman Rocks. That is it for now. Thank you for listening and we'll see you at the next episode. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett.
Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 